Shalom Aleichem. We are continuing together in the third volume of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's Keter Shem Tov. We're in the introduction. We're in the final classes of this section of the introduction. Are we really all the same? In which Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is comparing Sephardim and Ashkenazim and various practices that we have to show that this theory that Sephardim and Ashkenazim are pretty much identical, except for, um, is really not so accurate. And there are so many differences between us. And to identify 51 of those differences, presumably, so that we can discover how we can unite. For right now, we are in the Roman numeral 22. Twenty-two, so it's going to be twenty in your PDF, and at the top of the page it should say Lamed Aleph, but we are in Lamed Bet. Do you see this? No problem. So we are on page twenty in the PDF, which is really twenty-two in the Roman numerals. Perfect. So, Rabbi Shem Tov again writes in Lamed Bet, 32. Sephardim. The Sephardim, Mikimin HaSefer Torah Pa'amayim. The Sephardim lift the Sefer Torah twice. When he says lift, he refers to uh, what they call Hagbaha today in the Bera Knesset. Or Hagba. You hear about Ashkenazim? This is what he refers to. Hagbaha Torah. So they lift the Sefer Torah twice. Kodem HaKiriyah. Before the reading and after the reading. And Ashkenazim lift the Torah once after the Torah reading. Could I ask if there are any people here who have been in a minyan in which they lift the Torah twice? No. I remember once upon a time being in a minyan at the Kotel where they did Hagbaha before the Kiriyah and Hagbaha after the Kiriyah. I attributed that to, who knows, maybe the guy who started the Minyan was uh, Sephardic and the one who did Musaf was Ashkenazi. I don't know exactly what was going on over there. But here he's recording this as a Minhag. The Sephardim lift the Torah twice, once before, once after. Sephardim, uh, Ashkenazim, only lift the Torah at the end, a second time. The footnotes don't match up to what he wrote on top. So I'm not going to argue with Rabbi Shavdov Gagin, but rather I'll say that for today's world, Sefaradim lift the Sefer Torah before Torah reading, and Ashkenazim lift the Sefer Torah at the end of the Torah reading. Is that accurate to what you've observed in Batei Yeah, okay. Let's look at footnote 75. Ayen Shulchan Aruch. Look at the Shulchan Aruch, and he sent us to chapter 134. I'll read to you the words of Maran. Maran writes... Let me pull up my safari. Maran says, and this is before the laws of reading in the Torah. Maran says, 
מראה פני כתיבת ספר תורה לעם העומדים לימינו ולשמאלו. He shows the writing in the Sefer Torah to the people on his right and his left. And he turns it to the front and the back of him. The mitzvah is on all men and all the women to see the writing that is inside of the Sefer Torah and to bow and to say There's all kinds of pesukim that people say while they lift the Torah. Maran is telling you that before the reading of the Torah, the one who reads the Torah, or somebody else, it doesn't really make a difference, lifts the Torah and shows the writing to everybody. Ramah adds, The custom here is to do this after we read in the Torah. So, Sefaradim, Maran, says that you do Hagmaha before Kriyat HaTorah, <laughs> and Ashkenazim are doing that after Kriyat HaTorah. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin writes, Our custom is explicitly written in Masechet Sofrim. And if you look at Masechet Sofrim, chapter 14, Halacha 14 there, Masechet Sofrim is very clear that we lift the Torah before we read the Torah. Ayen Sham na Nachalat Yaakov, look in the commentary of Nachalat Yaakov, which brings other sources to back up the Sephardic custom. You will see that even in the order in which Maran arranged the Shulchan Aruch, he mentions the laws of lifting the Torah before the laws of reading the Torah, because according to Maran, you read after you lift the Torah. So why do the Ashkenazim then do the opposite of what it seems to say in Masechet Sofrim, or the opposite of the Shulchan Aruch? Ramah says there is a minhag the other way. Tam, the minhag Ashkenaz, the reason of the Ashkenazi minhag, mishum shehamon ha'am choshvim shiriyat sefer Torah adifa me'akiriyat. There was a problem in Ashkenaz. For whatever reason, I don't, I'm not privy to those details. In Ashkenaz there was a problem that people believed that watching the Sefer Torah be lifted was more important than actually sticking around to hear the Torah being read. And for that reason, they first used to read the Torah in order to keep the audience captive because everybody wanted to see the Torah being lifted. Then after the reading, they show them the Sefer Torah. So then why do these Sephardim, the Rabbi Shem Dovgigin mentions, lift the Sefer Torah a second time at the end of the reading? The Sephardim lifted a second time so that all those who missed Hagbaha the first time get a second chance when they lift it at the end of the reading. It seems to me that this Minhag is not so prevalent among Sephardim. I'd be curious to know where it is. Nonetheless, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is telling you that Hagbaha was important both by Sevaradim and by Ashkenazim. For the Ashkenazim, Hagbaha was so important that people were skipping the Torah reading in order to see the Hagbaha, they would just leave. They wouldn't stay for the Torah reading. By the Sevaradim, even the people who came late felt so bad for missing the Hagbaha, they would raise the Torah for them a second time. You know, on an educational level, in Akilah, I don't think it's wise to always cater to those who are not doing things correctly. 
Nonetheless, that was the minhag. My grandmother, my mother's mother, Safsachana, she used to go to the Berakneset every single Shabbat just to see Hagbat Torah. She would go and she would point, and that was the highlight of her Shabbat. She, and you know, even the days I remember where she couldn't walk so well, she was, it took her a long time. The distance to the Berakneset, to her house, a healthy person could make that walk in three and a half minutes, four minutes. She, it took her, could be 20 minutes to get to the Beda Knesset, 25 minutes to get to the Beda Knesset. And she insisted, even in the middle of August, in the hottest summer in, in Israel, she would walk to the Beda Knesset to see Hagbat Torah. And the way she would point to the Torah, and she would kiss the Torah. Maran is very clear that the Minhag of Hagbaha includes the men and the woman. That both the men and the woman have an obligation to see the Sefer Torah. The Shas party in Israel, despite all of my political and religious and otherwise other differences between myself and that party, uh, the Shas party, which was the Sephardic party under the leadership of Chacham of Yosef, they once ran an ad before the elections in Israel, and they had a big billboard of a lady's finger pointing to the Sefer Torah. It was a Sephardic Torah, a lady pointing at the bottom, vote Shas, something like that. And the Ashkenazi rabbis of Jerusalem and Bnei Brak, they lost it. They lost it. How do these people, they pretend to be religious, they're putting pictures of a lady's finger on a billboard, the whole world can see this finger. Don't they know that it says in Halakha that even a finger, all kinds of, they started, they went wild. They wrote a letter to Chaim Vadi Yosef. Cease and desist from putting these terrible pictures up in the public domain. And Chaim Vadi Yosef, there used to be a book. I don't, I don't have it. I've been looking for this book for over... If I'm, I'm not lying if I would tell you over 15 years. I'm looking for this book. It's a two-volume set called Halichot Musal. It was an unauthorized transcription of shiurim that Rabbi Vadi Yosef gave in various locations. And in there, Rabbi Vadi Yosef reacted to this. And he said, if only these people would know how dear and precious it is to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when a woman da- points at the Torah by Hagbat the Torah, they would never write me such stupid letters. And that was his attitude about such a thing. In my kilan, the Sefer Torah goes around the room, and the men kiss it, and the women kiss it. And there was once a rabbi who was visiting here, and he was very upset about this. How do you take the Sefer Torah to the women's section, and the women are all coming, they're kissing the Torah, da da da. Yeah. He went, I said, but you know, there's a, there's a mitzvah, to chibuv mitzvah, to kiss the Sefer Torah. Yeah, but the woman and this, and they might kiss the chazan, and okay. He said, listen, I don't believe you're doing this on your own. Go call Haraperet after Shabbat. If Haraperet tells you, fine. So I called Haraperet Mosei Shabbat. I waited till 1 o'clock in the morning to call Haraperet in Israel time. And Haraperet, he didn't understand the, the story here. He said, which kind of kina doesn't take the Sefer Torah to the woman to be kissed? He said, it's a mitzvah of chibu mitzvah. Everybody's supposed to hug and kiss the Sefer Torah. He said, yeah, but the rabbi said, maybe, maybe they'll kiss the chazan. He said, oh, you think every chazan is a clown? They tell the chazan, to, I don't know, to be careful, nobody should kiss him. What kind of crazy people kiss a chazan when he's holding his Sefer Torah? Haraperetz, his attitude was adamant. This mitzvah, chibuv mitzvah, applies to men and women equally. When I came back to tell this rabbi, so then he went on a tell, oh, see, he's not really a real rabbi. Okay, so it, it worked. If he would have said what you wanted to say, he's a real rabbi, we should stop doing it. But he didn't say what you wanted to say, so now I know how it works. Hagbah, Hagbah is a precious time. Uh, for the Mukubalim, Hagbah is even more important to look at letters, to see the letters. Some even have a minhag to see letters corresponding to their name. 
I just look at the writing, see which parashat the Shavuot is. In our Kihina, when we lift the Torah, all the boys and the girls in the Beda Knesset, under Bar Mitzvah age, they take, a, everyone gets a, a pointer, a yad, an etzba, and they all come and they point at the Torah at the right place. The Chazan shows them, the Koreh shows them where the right place is to point, and the whole Kihina watches as they point to us where in the Sefer Torah we are reading on Shabbat. Lamed Gimel. Lamed Gimel. Let me grab a Siddur for this one. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin writes, Sefaradim, Keshachatan ole le Sefer Torah. By the Sefaradim, when the Chatan, the groom, goes up to the Sefer Torah, When a chatan goes up to read the Torah, when we say a chatan goes to read the Torah, which Shabbat are we talking about? Before his wedding or after his wedding? After the wedding. After, why? Why not before his wedding? Not Very good, he's not a chatan. Before his wedding, he's not a chatan. He's just another guy. When the chatan goes up to read the Torah, Shabbat chatunah, in the Shabbat of his wedding, milvad chovat kriyato, Aside from whatever aliyah he gets, the regular aliyah, kore lo ha-shaliach tzibur v'ha-kahal, the shaliach tzibur, the chazan, and the kahal, they read for him, parashat v'avraham zaken im atargum. They read for him from Bereshit, the verses v'avraham zaken, and the targum, the Aramaic translation. Ashkenazim en yodim minhag zeh. And Ashkenazim have never heard of such a minhag. So this minhag doesn't even exist by the Ashkenazim. If you know, in a Sephardic community, the Chatan goes up, they sing all kinds of songs, Yismach Chatani, Bikal he goes up to the Torah, and then they read to him a special parasha. Now in the olden days it seems they used to use an actual book, a Sefer Torah itself, to read for this for him. Today it seems like the Kehillah just does it from a Sidu or from a Chumash or from whatever else. Vavraham Zaken Babayimim, what's happening in this parasha, Vavraham Zaken Babayimim, what's going on here? Why do we read this? Meaning, what, what's happening in this parasha? Don't tell me why. But what's, what are we reading about? When we read for the Chatan these verses, what are we reading for him? Do you know? I'll read to you. Avraham became old and he was coming of age and Hashem blessed him with everything. Avraham Avinu tells his servant, Zekan Beto, the elder of his home, Hamoshel b'chol ha'sherlo, who rules over everything that he has. Who's he speaking about? Who's he speaking to? Who's the slave? Eliezer Ebed Avraham. I know that there's a tendency among some commentaries to treat Eliezer like he's some nobody. He's just a slave, he's another nation. Eliezer, if you see the way HaKadosh Baruch speaks about him in the Torah, you see the way Avraham Avinu speaks about him in the Torah, he's not a regular person. He's not a simple man. Let's translate it literally. Place your hand below my thigh. Whatever you want to read into that pasuk, read into that pasuk. I will make you swear and the God, the heavens of the, uh, the God of the heavens, and the God of the earth. 
אשר לא תיקח אישה לבני במנות הכנעני אשר אנוכי יושב בקרבו. Do not take for my son a daughter from the nation, a wife from the nations that are sitting around us in the land of Canaan. Go to my country, to my birthplace. And take for my son Yitzchak a wife from there. And that's when, that's when Eliezer is worried. What happens if the lady does not want to come with me? So what's happening in this parasha? We're reading this Nechatan. What are we reading about? What's the story here? Avraham Avinu is telling Eliezer to do what? To get a wife for his son Yitzchak. Very good. That's why we read this parasha here. And we translate it into Aramaic. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, he writes at the bottom, footnote 76, Ayin Keter Shem Tov, go look in my Keter Shem Tov, what I wrote about over there. With your permission, if I could read to you a little bit from the Keter Shem Tov, and by the way, I'm confident that the Keter Shem Tov, volume 2, is also inside of your, it's not in the Zoom invitation, but it's somewhere, if you know how to use the Google Classroom well, it's somewhere over there in the folders. This minhag is very old, says Rabbi Shindov Gagin, and it was recorded in the writings of the Abu Dhaham, in the name of Rav Sadia Gaon. So this minhag is already found in Alexandria of the time, in Egypt. And it seems like in Ashkenaz there may have been a special haftarah that was read for a khatan and a Shabbat khatan, but that doesn't seem to exist anymore. Why do we read this parasha? Umatsati l'Rabbeinu Bachir. He said, I read, saw in the writings of Rabbeinu Bachir, Seder Chaye Sarah, in Parashat Chaye Sarah, Shenatan Tam Tekana Zor, he mentions a reason for why we read this for the Chatan and Kana, Mishum Laskir Ha'am, to remind the nation, the people, Shizaher Benisuav, to be very careful with who you marry. Vishloi Kach Yishal Hashem Yofi Vegomer, a person should not marry somebody just because of the way they look. Ela Yisa Yisha Mibron Mishpachto, that a person should marry a spouse from his family. Vidbak bekovotav, and he should cling to his relatives. Kichen asa Avraham, and that's what Avraham Avinu did. Now, you should know. In the world before us, in the world before us, this was very common, to marry relatives. How close of relatives? Today with uh, science and medical research, we know that too close of relatives can lead to all kinds of other problems that, are, that, that happen from there. But... You know, it's curious, I once read an article, and you'll forgive me if I'm not stating it accurately. There was a trend in, in the United States in the early 1900s to outlaw marriage between family members. Obviously, Chazrulam, they're not talking about Arayot, so no brothers and sisters or parents and children. We're not talking about that close. Cousins, mostly first cousins, second cousins. There was a trend to outlaw this, and many countries started getting on that bandwagon, except for the United Kingdom. I don't know what the law is today, but could someone perhaps share with me why you might think the United Kingdom wouldn't be so quick to ban marriage between family members? Because of the royal family. Because this is something that was still done and practiced on the royal family. Avraham Avinu is, is in this context a royal man and he wants his family to marry into his own family. And whereas that might sound very foreign to our ears in terms of what we do today, this was something that Am Yisrael was very particular about once upon a time. If you don't want to take it so literally, 
it's not so much that a person shouldn't marry some, somebody outside of their family, but Rabbeinu Bach is telling us, don't go after people because of the way they look or how much money they have. You should marry somebody because there are values that you share in common. There's a, you're close enough to have been family. This is obviously not a literal reading. But this is the idea we're trying to pass to the Khatan. When you're choosing a spouse, make sure that you choose a spouse for the right reason and not a spouse for the wrong reason. I'm not embarrassed to tell you a story. It once happened. I embarrassed my parents in their house. It's okay, it happens a long time ago. Somebody once came to my parents' house. He was supposedly a religious man. And he was already past the first marriage, at least. So he was divorced. He was sitting in my parents' house, and there was somebody at the table who was a Shadchanit. And they said, what are you looking for? Maybe we can find you a Shidduch. And he said, I can't say everything he said, because it's, it's would be an Avera on my lips, but he said, I want her to be blonde and tall and skinny. That was what he said. Yani, this guy was supposed to be a yeshiva student. You know, like that was, that was his, um, his personality. I remember hearing in the show, yeah, but like, what about what she does for a living? Or what kind of, no, I don't care. As long as she's, and he kept repeating is what he's looking for. At a certain point, I couldn't understand. Like, this man is, is Og Melech Habashan was more refined individual than this man. And I, I told this lady at the table, I said, it's forbidden for you to set this man up on a date with anybody. No human being deserves to date a person like this. Wow, what do you mean? What are you, chutzpah? You're a young guy? I was very upset. I said, listen, you think you're, no matter who you marry, no matter how beautiful you marry, all of us, we age after time. People get sick, people get in car accidents. So what, once she doesn't look the way you want her to look anymore, what are you going to do? You're going to throw her to the curb. What kind of crazy people, this is the, what they're, listen, I'm, I'm taking a, a, a tangent here. I shouldn't be speaking about these things on a camera for sure. What was done when I was in Shiduchim was bad enough. But I'm telling you now, anyone going forward in the world of dating, in the world of Shiduchim, and all these resumes, the minahim, all the crazy things people do, I don't understand in which reality people who go to yeshiva and claim to be learning Torah, and maybe who knows, they want their father-in-law to support them in, in Koilel for the next 300 years. All of these people are sitting around on their phones or their computers getting pictures of the girls they're going to date or not going to date that their mother gets from them from the Shadchanit. The mother is sending all... What kind of crazy world are you in? Oh, yeah, looks are important. You have to know what a person looks like. Great, so go on a date. Extend somebody the common courtesy of dating them. Take them for a cup of coffee. Go to a Starbucks. I don't know you go sit in a nice place. Talk. If it's not the type of person you're looking for, you're not attracted to somebody, good, so don't go on another date. But what kind of, what kind of person purports to be observant and, and all day they're busy looking at pictures of the girls they're going to date, they're not going to date. They're, what kind of human being... I don't, I, listen, I know that for those who are in the world of Shiduchim, I sound crazy, but that's why I'm not in the world of Shiduchim. Uh, how long can you be an ugly person for? A person has to know when I'm dating somebody, there are things that are important. What? What? Who? I can't hear you. I agree with you, but it's and by the way, and I didn't mean to get into the world of shiduchim, but this this world that purports to be so spiritual and so not physical and chitzonius doesn't matter. That and then you know, I had my my wife had a student who went to Shadchanit to speak to her, and I'm not setting up with anybody. So why not? 
said, you should lose a few pounds, go get your hair done, and hire someone to teach you how to put makeup on your face. He said, until then, I can't set you up with any of the yeshiva boys I have. I mean, all of the yeshiva boys that they have in Lakewood and New York is where the girl was dating, all of them are, all of them are Rishayim, every single one of them. You couldn't find one of them that is a human being? No, because the, the Shadchanit is a, is a Mirshad, she's an evil person. So for sure the mother of the boys are evil people and they teach their boys to be evil people and the whole world is there. So what am I supposed to do? Of course it's a recent development in terms of, of that, but there's always, it's a culture that exists in this world that, that is, you know, if other people, fine. You know, anyways, we're on a tangent, let's do it. Avam, Avam Avinu was sending Eliezer, Ebed Abraham, to go look for a, a wife. Do you know how much money is involved in the realm of dating and marrying? And you know, We spoke about the royal family. I don't stick my head in that business. But this has been conversations that have happened there too. What happens if a person from a very wealthy family wants to marry just a regular lady, a regular guy? She just wants to marry somebody, as a simple good Jew. Hard-working man, a hard-working lady, what if that happens? In the world around us, all these goyim that people are busy telling you how bad they are, it can happen that the wealthiest person in the world, from the most prestigious family in the world, walks into a restaurant, meets a girl, falls in love with her, and gets married, Shalom al Ishmael, and then the rest of their life, everything is wonderful for them. When it comes to Am Yisrael, no, if they're not from this type of social uh, status, they're not from this, they don't live in this kind of house, this kind of because the father doesn't work this kind of job, then we're not even dating in the first place. So you consider yourself to be refined Jewish people, but the world around you is light years ahead of you in terms of refinement? It's some things that I, they, don't, they don't calculate well in my head. And maybe I'm just naive and stupid, it could be, but these are things that if Am Yisrael does not fix, and Am Yisrael don't talk about, then, then I don't know, we'll, we'll be guilty, all of us will be guilty of carrying this burden on our shoulders. Okay, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin continues about other reasons for why we might take out a special seven Torah, like we took out for the Nasi or for the king, we take out a special Torah. So also a Chatan is a special person that we take out a Torah from, uh, for him. The question is, why do we translate this into Aramaic? So there's a discussion among different rabbis. The reason we translate to Aramaic is because the kala comes. And it could be the kala is not proficient in the Hebrew. So we translated it into a language that she understands. Some then say, but the kala doesn't even come to the Beit Knesset in many communities. So then why are we reading it for the kala in Aramaic if she's not even there? So then it leads Roshem Dov Gagin the whole question. Should the kala be there? Should she not? Fine. The bottom line, Rabbi Shem again, the answer, the simplest answer is always the truth. Peretz always says, Hapashtut, Whatever is the simplest answer is the truest answer. The truest answer, once upon a time, especially in the days of the Geonim, we used to translate the Torah verse by verse into Aramaic. If you go to a proper Yemenite community, some old-fashioned Turkish communities, they still do this. This is a, not a minhag, it's a halakha. The halakha requires when we read the Torah to translate it verse by verse from Hebrew to Aramaic. And so it happens to be that we don't do that anymore. But because this minhag is so old, it's preserved in the way in which it was started, which was to read Hebrew into Aramaic. Nothing to do with the Kala, nothing to do with coming to the Beit Knesset, everything to do with this is an old Torah reading. And because of that, it's translated into Aramaic. Let's look at the next difference. Rishonov Gagin writes, Lamed Dalad Sefaradim. The Sephardim, on the eve of Pesach, 
both the firstborn sons and the firstborn daughters fast on Erev Pesach, on the eve of Pesach. Ashkenazim, raka bechorot zacharim. By the Ashkenazim, only the firstborn sons fast, not the firstborn daughters. And he refers you to this volume of Keter Shem Tov, uh, on page 16, where he discusses this matter at length. Are you familiar with the Shulchan Aruch on this? Anybody has studied the laws of Pesach inside the Shulchan Aruch? If you open up a Shulchan Aruch, or Chaim, to 470, Taf Ayn. Maran writes in Sif Aleph. Habichorot, the firstborns. Mit Anin be'erev Pesach. They fast on the eve of Pesach. Ben bechor me'av, ben bechor me'em. Whether they are firstborn to their father or firstborn to their mother. V'yesh mishomer, and there's one who says, Shafilu nekeva bechorah mit'ana. That a firstborn daughter fasts as well, says the Ramah ve'en haminhad ken. And the custom is not that the daughters fast. Now Maran, when he says yesh mishomer, there's someone who says, it's, it's an interesting wording that Maran uses and why Maran used that for a different shiur. But if you look into the books around the Shulchan Aruch, among the Sephardim, almost all of them record that the minhag among Sephardim was that the firstborn daughters fast as well. I remember once learning this siman with Arav Peretz, and he told me it's bad enough that the firstborn males fast. Why do you also have to punish the females? But, but at the end of the day, this is the minhag. Why is this minhag the case? The Midrash tells us that in Egypt, when the makat b'chorot happened, the plague of the firstborns happened, it wasn't only the firstborn sons that were killed, but also the firstborn daughters, with the exception of who? Who didn't die in that plague? A firstborn daughter who didn't die. Who? Wait, say it, I didn't hear. Close, the sister, not sister. Not sister, say, say, it's someone connected to Paro. Who said? Very good, Shraga. Paro's daughter. What was Paro's daughter's name? <laughs> right? Bitiah. Bitiah, the daughter of Paro. Very good. Bitiah, Bitiah, because of the merit of Moshe Rabbeinu, which protected her, she was not killed in Egypt, and even though she was the firstborn daughter. But aside from that, the Midash records the firstborn daughters died as well. Now, there are some uh, other Ashkenazi commentators about how could it be? A daughter doesn't have Kedushat Bechor, she doesn't have the the firstborn status in Halakha. And, and Rav Hashem Tov says it doesn't make a difference. What does that have to do with the fact of the reason why the Bechorot fast on the eve of Pesach is because they were saved from dying in Egypt. What does that have to do with status of a Bechor? Anyone who would have died on that day in Egypt has to fast uh, now on Erev Pesach. And that's where the Minhag of Sepharad comes from. The Minhag of Ashkenaz though is not to fast. The daughters do not fast on Erev Pesach. I'm curious if anybody here is a firstborn uh, daughter uh, to their parents, mother or father, who fasts on Erev Pesach? No. Okay.
Listen, if you want to start taking on minhagim, this is not the right place to start. Even matter, considering that most people end up, you know, making a siyum and not fast. <laughs> right, so the whole siyum, that's not, that's siyum, that's siyum that happens. It's a real, it's a real thing? Yeah, women are busy enough on Arab Pesach. In my house, the men are also busy on Erev Pesach. I grew up one of five boys. There's no delegation to anybody. We just, uh, everyone's busy on Erev Pesach. I think there's a famous letter of the Khatam Sofer. I think it was the Khatam Sofer. He's writing a letter at Teshuvah and Halakha, and he says, I'm sorry, I would write more, but the ladies are throwing me out of my room because they need to get it ready for Pesach. And he ends the letter, and, and that's the end of the... Okay, uh, this... This idea of making a siyum so you don't have to fast... It's kind of like what people do in the nine days. There's a few assumptions that go into this. The assumption is that the siyum naturally happens on Erev Pesach. Meaning, someone finishes studying, wow, it's Erev Pesach, let's make a celebration. Two, it assumes that the person always makes a celebration on Erev Pesach. Uh, not Erev, uh, when they finish a siyum, uh, Masechet. So, a kind of person who never makes a siyum. They finish learning all the time, but they never actually do anything special for it. So why all of a sudden comes Erev Pesach, you decide you have to throw a party. Next. What kind of food do you eat at that party? Erev Pesach should actually teach you something about the nine days. So Erev Pesach, what do they serve you by the siyum and Erev Pesach? What do you get in the Beit Knesset in the morning when they do that siyum? Some biscuits. Yeah, some biscuits mostly made out of potatoes. You know, like potato starch with raspberry filling and a lot of chocolate. Really, it's a potato with, with, with jam and, and chocolate, if you think about it this way. And some palm oil, which will kill you if you eat enough of it over time. This... This thing that they have in the morning of the Erev Pesach, that's what they consider eating on the fast day. Fine. When it comes to the nine days, how come the same guy who every year he makes a siyum on, on uh, potato raspberry biscuits, how come comes time for nine days, suddenly it's ribeye steaks and burgers and, and lamb chops and how could it be? I mean, the same guy who would never celebrate the siyum comes the nine days, ah, all of a sudden, look at the meal he throws. Shalom Mohammedak would be jealous of the meal. More than that, more than that. It's assuming that the people who come to this person's siyum know him, her, it could be either way, but know him, and that they, they, listen, would normally be invited to this person's party had he been throwing a party any other day of the year. So all of these assumptions mean that whatever is happening is not natural. Uh, when it comes to, to the nine days, for example, and there are restaurants that I heard about in New York, they hire kolel guys. I don't know how much they pay them, 50 bucks, 100 bucks. Finish a masechet and then come do a siyum in the restaurant so everybody can order food. These people don't know you. You never throw a siyum with food. You never would have invited these people. You finished it just to do this. The whole thing is, if you want to eat meat in the nine days, just eat meat in the nine days. Maran says in the minhag not to have meat in the nine days. You don't want to follow the minhag? Fine, but at least be honest about it. Don't pretend that because you did some kind of uh, siyum, you didn't even do anything, that it's considered making an exception to the rules in the nine days. The same with Erev Pesach. I don't, listen, if this halakha was an important one, if fasting on Erev Pesach was so important, I would tell you that if somebody were to ask me and they were a firstborn, they should fast on Erev Pesach. Just fast. Don't. But, but being that I know how hard it is in Erev Pesach, and I know how much stress in Erev Pesach, I know how late Pesach starts in many places, then I know that by the time you get to the Seder, it takes another good long while until you even eat at the Seder. So it's not like you break your fast right as soon as... So fine, I'm willing to say that a person, 
you have to find a way to get out of it. Fine. So you make a siyum. You make a siyum. Study something. It doesn't have to be. Finish a masechta of Talmud, of Mishnayot, if it's too much, of Tanakh. Take a whole book of Tanakh and finish that book of Tanakh. Then make a siyum. For who? For you and your wife or your husband and your children. And make a siyum and eat food and have breakfast. And then shalom alayhi But the, the thing that they do in the morning of... It doesn't make sense. In my kilah, I will tell you that we, when we do a siyum in Ere Pesach, either it's my father who does the siyum or one of the... I saw a Schwartz here before. One of the Schwartz boys or one of the Savin boys. So Itai, or one of them will do a siyum. In my kihila, it's such a small kihila that is so close that if any one of us would do a siyum, all of us would be there. So it could work. It could work. This mechanism could work. But all of the random people that show up, they don't see them the whole year. Even Yom Kippur, you don't see them. But Erev Pesach, they show up for this. I don't even know what they're doing here. We don't even know who they are. How does a siyum work for them? I have no idea. I don't know. Like I told you, it's not a halakha I feel need to go a crusade about. But it's, it's uh, something that is so, it smacks of dishonesty. And I can't emit, emit, emit. Truth is the most important thing that we have. Torah emit and Okay, let's keep moving. Lamed Hay. Rabbi Shandov Gagin writes, Sefaradim, Belele Rosh Hashanah, on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, Ochlim Kodem Asudam Minei Rakot Uperot. They eat all kinds of fruits and vegetables by the Rosh Hashanah Seder. Virosh Keves and the head of a lamb, and they say about everything they eat, some kind of Yihiratzon. May we be full of mitzvah like a pomegranate, may we be like a head and not like a tail, may we, all kinds of, may our enemies uh, fall, all of these brachot, the Yihiratzons that we say over every one of those foods. Ashkenazim, they just have an apple and honey. Dip an apple in the honey, make a bracha loud and clear. That's, that's all the Ashkenazim are used to doing. Maybe, maybe Ashkenazim also make a Shekhyanu, but that doesn't have to do with, with the, the Simanim of the new year. Now, what are the origins of Simanim? You can look in Masechet Keridut, what he brings in the footnotes, and Maran the Shulchan Aruch definitely writes, this is the Minhag to do it. I'm not going to tell you that this was always the Minhag. From my understanding of the Talmud, it seems like they would look at certain foods and, and think about certain things. I don't know about eating them, and I don't know if it was this many things. And every time people seem to add more things, and what is the point of a siman that seems quite superficial in terms of, of the holy day like Rosh Hashanah? It's not the shiul that I'm giving today. I would love to learn this with you, but not today. Nonetheless, I'll tell you when I first went to Yeshiva in Baltimore, I known Ashkenazim before, but I known I was with you know Hasidim, Chabad. It was a little different than real Ashkenazi, Lithuanian. And I went over there to Baltimore. Rosh Hashanah, Simanim. They never heard of Simanim. It wasn't even a thing. There wasn't even a not even a, a, a zecher of a Siman. There was an apple. Maybe some people dipped an apple in honey. It wasn't something that I saw the rabbis doing. It was just kind of a a minhag that people did on the side and. Over the years, the Sephardim, they developed a business out of this. So you'd have one Sephardic guy who he'd prepackage these trays of little beans and, and pomegranates and dates and, and head brain of a lamb or whatever. They put, they put it all in a little container and you could buy it for $15 for Oshana to do your own seder while the Ashkenazim were eating their food. The Sephardim would be busy with all of their simanim. That's, that's uh, what I remember. And I think that it could be that today those those differences have changed. Maybe Ashkenazim have adopted some of this. Maybe some Sephardim have dropped some of this. But this was once upon a time definitely a clear line between Sephardim and Ashkenazim. I know when I was
was growing up like this and my parents were Ashkenazi, maybe this is a example of cultural diffusion from from Sephardim, but we did have some of those things. It wasn't as much, and it wasn't maybe as big a deal as in the Sephardic communities, but we had like, besides the apple, there was like carrots, and there was the pomegranate, which probably wasn't accessible to Moshe Ashkenazim until recently. Um, oh, there was the fish and or fish head. Uh, that was one of them. I'm curious, um, Pam, if your if your grandparents do you know if your grandparents did this? Uh, I think they did the carrot. I think they did like the carrot thing. My parent, my grandparents died when I was very, very young. Got it. But from what my father, you know, remembers the reason why we had them in the house is from what he did when he was a child. So we had like a couple of them, but not necessarily like as big a selection. Uh, as the uh, Sephardi, as the Sephardim had, and it was in his grandmother's old sidur that she took over with her from Europe. So okay, but it could, it could very it could very well be that once Maran wrote this in the Shulchan Aruch, that really this spread uh, to many Ashkenazi places. It could be, you know, there's a way to read the Shulchan Aruch that the Rama is only adding the apple and honey. He's not taking away from whatever else is is written there in the Shulchan Aruch. Yeah, I, I, I'd be curious to know the origins and the, or the more the evolution of this minhag and how it spread to different places. Olamid Vav. I was going to say, probably some of it just had to do with what foods they had access to. Because if you look at what, what's in there, there's like date and, I don't know, spinach and uh, different things like black-eyed peat, like which... Or, and like a, a pumpkin, those are all like sort of seasonal sort of vegetables and fruits that were probably available for in certain places and others. And then they just made up a tefillah about it because like that's kind of what they had around them. <laughs> you know, it's like these making up of tefillah, it's actually something some people do have their own yiratons. They add, they said there was once a, there was once a guy, he came to visit his friend, Roshana, and he finds him under the table. He said, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing my simanim for Rosh Hashanah. I said, what siman are you doing? He shows him he has a, a raisin, a, a celery stock. You know, they put peanut butter with raisins in it. There's a, they give this to kids. Maybe they used to give it to us in preschool before the peanut butter allergies became a thing. So it's uh, ants on a log, they call it. But it was celery with uh, raisins. So they asked, he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm, I'm praying. He got someone that goes, well, should give me a raisin and a celery. That I should have a raisin in my salary. He said, so tell me, so why are you sitting under the table? He's like, because I hope that it comes under the table and I won't have to pay taxes on it also. Uh, this, everyone can add their own simanim to the, the Seder Oshana. Lamedvav at the top left. Sephardim, en omdim lo bekidush, velo b'shat kriyat ha-Torah, kadish, velo b'shat kriyat ha-Torah, ashkenazim omdim b'shnehem. The Sephardim don't have a minhag to stand by the kadish and by the Torah reading, and ashkenazim stand for both. The Ramah writes, v'yesh l'amod be... Kshonin Kaddish, that a person should stand when they say Kaddish, meaning Maran is actually quite clear the opposite. Maran in the Shulchan Aruch, he says that everyone has a seat, and the Chazan goes up and says Kaddish, which you can imply from there that the Savaradim didn't stand for Kaddish. If I'm not mistaken, the Rambam writes very similar words, that, that everyone sits down for the Bechat Yotzer, and the Chazan goes up to say Kaddish. By the Ashkenazim, Kaddish, it's obvious that everyone stands for Kaddish, and it says, it could be, it could be, and the Sephardim were forced after the Shittah Tari, and the Maran didn't get into it. 
It could be that since the Arizal sat down for Kaddish, and he specifically sat down for Kaddish, that it could be the Sephardim dragged, were dragged after the Arizal. I mean, they, their custom follows that of the Arizal, especially since Maran, the Shulchan Aruch, doesn't give an opinion as to whether or not you should stand or sit for Kaddish. By Torah reading, has anyone been to an Ashkenazi synagogue where they stand for the entire Torah reading? Yeah, for sure. If you go to, to, and I would say, not to like a community type Ashkenazi synagogue, but if you go to what they would call a yeshiva affiliated an Ashkenazi synagogue, you will find that almost everyone is standing for Torah reading. When I was in Baltimore, I remember, I never knew. Torah reading is when you get to sit in your chair. Over there, everybody stands up for Torah reading. And you stand the whole Kirat Torah, everything. Why? This is an Ashkenazi minhag. Now it could be, by the way, that this is really... This is really an old minhag. It used to be that when Jewish people studied Torah, they stood, they studied Torah standing out of respect to the Torah. Our rabbis tell us in the Talmud that at a certain point, when one of the Chachamim died, the Jewish people got weak and they no longer were able to stand. This leads Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin and his Keter Shem Tov in a different volume to discuss whether or not it's proper that certain rabbis stand while the community sits. Is it proper for guests to stand if the community sitting? Is it proper for guests to sit if the community standing? That is not in the scope of today's conversation, but definitely this is a conversation, and I think that Sephardim and Ashkenazim are different in terms of whether they sit or stand for Kaddish. There may be one Kaddish, two, two instances of Kaddish where Sephardim stand. Can you tell me what it is? Very good. So, Kaddish. Before Friday night, Baruch uh, that Kaddish, many Sevaradim stand. The Kabbalists had a tradition that then a person receives that extra neshama that they, they receive on Shabbat. And at a, in order to do that, they stand up. So that's one minhag. Very good. That's actually the one I thought people get second. What other, what other Kaddish do Sevaradim stand for? It's a less a type of Kaddish and more a scenario. In which scenario do Savaladim stand for Kaddish? A regular Kaddish. Not if they're saying it, obviously. What else? Once Kaddish has started, it seems that Savaladim don't sit down during while the Kaddish has started. That you sit down before the Kaddish has started, and then you stay stand, sitting. But to sit down in the middle of Kaddish, I haven't uh, seen that be done. Lamed Zayn. The truth is I, I skipped this one when I was preparing my notes for the shiur, so I'm going to go in this one blind. I didn't prepare this one at all. Sefaradim, kodim bekat Torah. Sefaradim, before they bless the Torah, korim la tzibur Rabbanan. They call out to the community, they say, Rabbanan. V'yashomim pasuk, Adonai imachem. And some say, Adonai imachem, or Hashem imachem. Who said Hashem imachem? Biblically, who do we find that said this pasuk? When he greets... Boaz, very good. What happens? When he meets the kotzerim in the field. Very good. Right? He says to the people that are cutting in the field, Hashem should be with you. Chacham of De Yosef used to say that whoever knows how to give a good rasha that's short, Hashem should be with him. Why? Boaz said to the people who, who speak short, briefly, Hashem should be with you. I recall he also once said it about people getting haircuts. He wants a man with hair that he thought was too long. He told him, If you cut your hair, Hashem should be with you. And the community responds, May Hashem bless you. If you know Rabbi Shatov Gagin researched the Jews of Cochin and he has a special book. Now, I don't know when he switched from spelling 
Cochin with a Tzadi and Cochin with a Gimel. It seems like he uses both. Um, but they had a different greeting. Shalom Anachem, and everyone answered back, Shalom Bechavatova. Ashkenazim and Yodim Minhagim Elu Ashkenazim don't are not familiar with any of these Minhagim. Ela Matchilin Mahabercha. They just start with the Bercha. And I always have somebody who comes around here and they go up to say the Bracha. You see, they don't know. They're, they're trying to imitate whatever they're doing, but they don't know because it's not something that they do. Rabbanan Bachudash and Vorach is very common, you see, amongst Varadim. Some even start Hashem Machem and Razijavach Hashem and Rabbanan Bachudash and Vorach. All of these are Minhagim. None of these are required. There is one unique greeting. I don't know what's done by the Spanish-Portuguese, but I can tell you that in North Africa, on Tisha B'Av, before they get an Aliyah to the Torah, what do they say? Anyone familiar with this Minhag? say, Baruch Dayan Ha'emet. No, Anenu. Blessed is the true judge. Before they get Aliyah, every time they get Aliyah, Baruch Dayan Ha'emet. So there are such greetings that are, I guess, meant to... to Add different flavors into the Kirat Torah. Sefaradim, Lamed Ched. Im katan yodea lishmor tefillin betahara. If a young child knows how to keep his tefillin pure, what does it mean? He knows how to be clean when he wears them. He knows how to not use his bodily functions while he's wearing tefillin. He knows how to take care of them properly. It's tefillin. Aviv konelo tefillin, his father buys him tefillin. So at what age do we buy a child tefillin? It's a very subjective number. Tell me about, about an age. <laughs> no, not nowadays. Meaning, how old is a child that he knows how to behave properly in this tefillin? Eight or nine years old. Minastam, my son, when he turns nine or ten, I plan to buy him tefillin already then. That's the halakha. Halakha requires to buy our children tefillin when they turn the age in which they're able to wear tefillin properly. This is something that is it's very important. It's, it's a halakha. But there are many things like that. When a child knows how to do he wears talit. When a child, sukkot is coming now. When a child knows how to wave 11 and 12 properly, you have to buy him his own 11 and 12. And so on and so forth. There are all, all these mitzvot. There, you don't wait until... Uh, how do you wait to educate a child when they turn bar mitzvah already? That's already too late. Before then, you have to teach them all of the mitzvot. But the Ashkenazim have a minhag. Dafka kashuhu ben yud gimel v'yom echad. Specifically when he's 13 and one day. Uh, if you look in 81, he writes of Shantov Gagin. Minhag sefara nove midmara sukkah. This is all based on the Talmud of Masechet Sukkah. If you look on page 42a, I didn't bring a, a sota with me. Well, I actually have a... It doesn't make a difference. You look it up, it's a beautiful uh, passage over there that tells you all of the things you have to do with your children. Both the Tur and Maran rule this way. He said, the He says that really when it says Katan, a young child, it means 13 in one day. He's a, he's a young man. It doesn't mean a child, it means a young man. And Maran argues with him. Why are you intentionally misinterpreting the Beraita when it's very clear that it refers to a young child? Nonetheless, the Ramah comes along. And the Ramah rules like the Balhaitu. And if I'm not mistaken, the Ramah actually writes, if not here, then elsewhere in Shulchan Aruch, he says, It's forbidden for Ashkenazi Jews to change this custom. I don't know what to do with the Ramah when the Ramah writes, Normally, when the Ramah says, you shall not change this custom, 
it's because he's giving respect to Maran, but he thinks Maran is wrong. But it doesn't make sense to say that here because it's obvious that Maran is ruling in accordance with the Talmud. So what's happening here, I don't know. If somebody Ashkenazi were to ask me, there should be no difference. A young boy who knows how to wear a talit should wear a talit. Who knows how to wear a talit? What about a wedding? We only wear by the wedding. What is it? You don't fulfill mitzvot until your wedding. You don't fulfill mitzvot until about mitzvah. It doesn't make sense. Tell a person. In our home, comes Sukkot, for example. The whole family goes to sleep in the sukkah. Even my babies, when they were born, my babies came with us to the sukkah. Of course, if the weather wasn't good or they weren't feeling well, it's not the case. But we would bring a crib into the sukkah. I want my kids to know to do mitzvot. Are they obligated? No, but I'm obligated and my wife is obligated. Maybe she's not obligated, but she comes to sleep in the sukkah. And you don't want to worry all the kids in the house. So you teach everybody. Already my children wait every year to go camping in the sukkah. If you don't teach your children to love the mitzvot when they're small, sometimes... Sometimes even when you teach them to love mitzvot when they're small, they grow up and they don't love mitzvot. How much more so if you don't try to teach them to love the mitzvot when they're small? You have to try. Lamitet. Yes. Uh, what about those tiny sized talits? You know what I'm talking about? The neck ones? Uh, yeah, the ones that certain uh, some Ashkenazim wear. My father had one. Uh, I have it back there. In my it's like a scarf. They call them a, a scarf talit. Yeah, those talits. Right. I, I bought my child a full-size talit, and I bought him real tachelet, and I spent a lot of money, but it is what it is. I'd rather that than, than those neck talitot. You should see, many people still wear them. It's not something that only your father, like many people still wear them. I don't know where, it, I, I know where it comes from. I don't know why people still do it. If you look at the old, I don't mean any offense to anybody. If you look at the old church photos, the, the priests, they have a certain scarf that they wear. It seems like the early maskilim also wanted a certain Jewish version of that. And they made a Jewish version of that. And then somehow it started becoming a thing to give those to children. I don't, I don't know. that. Maybe because it's not really obligated in tzitzit. My only thing is if someone wears that, then they tell me that according to their understanding of halakha, their scarves that they wear in the winter require tzitzit also. Because it's obvious this clothing doesn't require tzitzit. But if you say that it does, then on your scarves you also have to start tying tzitzit. I would give a child a real talit. Don't be afraid. A real talit. I mean, not a huge one, they have to fit in it, but a real talit. Lamitet. Sefaradim. En ha-chatan va-kala mitanin biyom chupatan. The chatan and kala do not fast in the day of their wedding. Ashkenazim mitanin, but Ashkenazim do fast on the day of their wedding. Now this is not so clear cut. There are Sephardic communities where the chatan fasted on the day of the wedding. There are communities where the chatan did not. Uh, I did not fast on the day of my wedding. I think my wife did. Um, to each their own, different min hagim. There seems to be some kind of connection here that Yom Kippur, Hashem forgives you for all your averot and so Fine, but then why, why just fasting? Rabbi Shem Tov talks about this in Keto Shem Tov. So if it's like Yom Kippur, so take off your shoes too and maybe don't shower, like all kinds of things. So why only fasting? He then compares it, some people say that it's more comparable to Tisha B'Av. Also, again, why Tisha B'Av? The Chatan is worried about the destruction of the Bermigdash, that's why he put ashes on his forehead, so he also he fasts. You know, my opinion about fasting is it's hard enough to fast that Chachamim instituted for us. To make people fast more, it's not, it's, we're not in that world where people fasting brings about some kind of meaningful change in them. If it works for you, fine. There are better things for a Chatan to be doing. And often I see, I marry off many couples. I see the people who are fasting, 
they're short-tempered, they have bad midot, they're angry, they want to eat already, they want to rush through things, they want... and I don't blame them, they're fasting, Miskinim, it's the most hectic day of their life, and you're not letting them eat any food or drink any drink. So maybe it would be better just to forego this minhag anyways, but I can't. If you tell certain people to give up their minhagim, they look at you like you're a terrorist. Sefaradim Ashkenazim in Mem, and Mishtavim Beseder Na'anu'e Halulav. The Sefaradim and Ashkenazim are not equal in the way that they wave the lulav and it's all on, on the chats. You know there's two mitzvot. One mitzvah is to actually lift the lulav and it's all. With that you fulfill a biblical commandment. And then there's the minhag of waving the lulav and it's all to every direction of the world. And I would say more than just Sefaradim and Ashkenazim are not equal with each other. Among Ashkenazim and among Sefaradim there are differences between this. Especially since uh, the Mekubalim have their own way to wave love and atom, that adds a whole new level of confusion that I see in Kilo. Always, every year before we do the waving love and atom, I tell people you could do whatever you want, but it's better if you all did the same way and we show which way to do it, and uh, that's the way that the whole Kila does it. Because if not, people start to get confused. And there's even a difference between Savadim and Ashkenazim in terms of whether when you wave in every direction, do you turn your whole body or do you just turn the love and all? What else? There's also a difference between Sephardim and Ashkenazim by love and all. Whether when you wave down, how should you wave down? So let's say, let's say that this is your lulav, yes? How would Sephardim wave downwards? Like this, right? Like this? Down. The Ashkenazim have a minhag to actually point downwards. The Rama mentions this minhag, and he says that it's still considered derg gidula, and it's still considered the way it grows, because you're holding it the right way. Also among Ashkenazim, there's a minhag to rattle the lulav and etong, by Sevaradim, that rattling, it doesn't seem to be a thing. Rather, it's just uh, we just bring back and forth to our chest three times the lulav and etong. And I really, today, all of those sources that I attach to the Google Classroom invitation, we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be for Mem Aleph, but I don't think that I have time to go through it today. So let me read it to you. I'll tell you what we're going to do next week, and we'll do that one next week. In Mem Aleph, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin writes something you would never guess. Hasefaradim v'Ashkenazim enan mishtavim b'miftah safayivrit. The Sephardim and Ashkenazim, they do not have the same pronunciation when it comes to Hebrew letters. Uh, this is what I would have started the list with. If you would have asked me, what do you start the list with? Okay, maybe the Nosach of the Tefillah, but number two should have been that they don't pronounce Hebrew the same way. Why this only made it to number 41 on the list, I don't know. I really don't know. I will tell you, though, that I came prepared. All of these handouts that I gave you, and we're not going to go through all of them, but... I went digging last night. I was up, you saw, I sent the email very late, California time. I was digging through newspapers of the 1900s. I found in 1908 a war between Rabbi Shem Tov, a real war, between Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin and a certain Dr. Gordon regarding the proper pronunciation of Hebrew. Uh, whose pronunciation of Hebrew is real? The Sephardic one or the Ashkenazi one? And Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, it's uh, no holds barred. He's, he holds nothing back. And he is adamant that he's right and the other professor can't believe the chutzpah that Rabbi Shantov Gagin has to suggest that the Ashkenazi pronunciation of Hebrew is incorrect. And before, 
I just, it's chaval to rush to this. So God willing, I will get, start off next week Shiyu with this conversation surrounding the pronunciation of Hebrew, as well as a curious book that I once found in a bookstore, explaining why the Hasidic accent of Hebrew, you know, like Uvini Malkaini, Buri Chatu Hashem, why that accent is correct. Why did I buy this book? I bought this book because it says, it proves the accent of the Hasidim is correct. And in the front page of the book, I was so excited because I saw that none other than, none other than Rabbi Meir Mazuz, the Rosh Yivat Kiser Chamim in the last Sephardic Baal Dikduk, he gave his letter of approval. Not one, but two letters of approval inside of the book. And I figured if Rabbi, Rabbi Mazuz agrees that the Hasidic accent of Hebrew is correct, then there's no way in the world I can buy this book. I didn't have time to learn in it, so I just bought the book. I was in New York. I flew back to San Diego. And next week, I'll tell you what happened when I opened up the book and I actually read the letters of Rabbi Mazuz. And I'll just tell you, they weren't quite a, a letter of approval to the book. Other words, yes, but approval, not so much. B'zad Hashem, I will see you all uh, next week.